Hello, welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is New to Two. everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me, as always, my wonderful two co-hosts, David Luzader. How are you this fine evening? I am doing well. Thanks to this movie, I have gone back to just having one Quentin Tarantino movie I have not seen. Uh, that's kind of where I existed for most of my life, so I'm glad to be back in the status quo. <laughs> yeah, I was actually, we, we need to talk about on the show what we were talking about in the pre-show, which is every American college student i think goes through a tarantino phase at least male yeah at least male yeah and i definitely went through that and like recently came out of it and you have some 2020 hindsight after coming out of it but uh joining us as well nicole davis how are you i'm doing very well thanks i'm interested to see what you guys think of this movie in depth this was my pick for new to two and uh hopefully a good one Absolutely. We're watching Jackie Brown. Came out in 1997, a Quentin Tarantino movie. When flight attendant Jackie Brown is busted smuggling money for her arms dealer boss, Ordell Robbie, federal agents want to help her bring, want her to help them bring down Robbie. Facing jail time for her silence or death for her cooperation, Brown decides instead to double cross both parties and make off with the smuggled money. Meanwhile, she enlists the help of a bondsman, Max Cherry, a man who loves her. Uh, um, this was a fascinating movie. From? <laughs> I got it straight from Google. When you Google a movie on the right-hand side, they give you their auto-generated description. So Wikipedia, basically. I'm sure it aggregates from Wikipedia <laughs> or some, something like that. Uh, now... I actually really don't like this description for several reasons. Um, The first being it kind of gives away that she's double crossing both parties because there is a point in the movie. If you've seen this for the very first time, as David and I did this week, where you're you might not actually be sure what she's doing. And that's part of the fun for me watching this for the first time. And then second, I don't know if Max Cherry loves her or is just maybe like creepily infatuated uh <laughs> it's 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 a movie you know they're in love after five minutes right it's, uh, yeah it's it's attraction it's right. attraction i was i was editing our jupiter ascending episode recently Ooh. uh and go back on the feed if you if you never heard that one but that was an issue with that film was the five minute the five minute love attraction that turns in the deep uh lifelong love but uh not for max cherry but we'll get to that later so let's talk about this i think the great introduction question from Nicole is, uh, is this the most accessible Tarantino film? Uh, I think this might've been the only one I hadn't seen, honestly. So I think I've cleared my, for me for a very long time. Uh, the only one now I haven't seen is hateful eight and, Mm -hmm. uh, don't know why I just haven't seen it. And it hasn't been three hours. Yeah. That's part of it. It's a good one to save for a very cold winter's day. Just like down in a couch in a million blankets. Plus, they destroy that guitar, which never sat well. Oh, it's so painful to watch, especially when you know that it's an antique and it's <sighs> super valuable. And it's just like, oh, God, and they no. had replicas. Anyway, this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> they have a Kurt Russell. I think uh, it's Tarantino's fault, I would say. He, Kurt Russell was just doing. Oh, of course. Doing yeah. that. Of I course. mean, both of them are cool. Anyway, this movie. Uh, I 
it's hard for me to say if this is the most accessible because I have seen so many other Quentin Tarantino movies. And we will discuss as going along with it, like this movie kind of breaks from some of those Tarantinoisms. I would have to have someone who's not as familiar with Tarantino watch this and tell me. Uh, but I think for me, I just have such a mindset and expectation going into a Tarantino movie. I don't think that I can give a solid answer on that. Do you think that it is Nicole? Do you think it is his most accessible? I think so. I think it's certainly his least violent. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Film. There are shootings, but the actual, you know, wounds and gore are off screen. You see like mm. blood spray here and there and that's about it. There's, uh, believe it or not, less swearing than most of his movies. (laughs) Though I will say, though, Tarantino at this time, I think I'm thinking of Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs because of budget constraints, aren't as gory. They're violent. They're definitely violent. Yeah. Which I guess you could say is the difference. There is violence here, but it's a little more parsed out. It's and even then, the the violence here is um is like, oh, bad guy shoots bad guy with gun. You know, it's really not right. as aggressively violent. I would say two things about this. The first is that, yes, it breaks from a lot of the uh, the tropes of Tarantino films, but I think the tropes it does break from in terms of his penchant for nonlinear storytelling, uh, his penchant for gore, I think that those are tropes that can create an inaccessible environment for a lot of people. Just naturally, when you make the story harder to follow or make it more difficult to watch. Uh, So I think in that sense, it is a much more accessible film. And then also, I think it's relatively easy to understand. Tarantino has some films that get a little bit more complicated. And uh, Claire came in an hour into this movie and I was able to spend about a minute maybe explaining to her exactly what had happened and she was able to follow the whole film just fine. I don't know if you could come an hour into Kill Bill and have me be able to really adequately explain what's going on. There's so many little nuances to that film that I don't think this has, at least not in the same way. Uh, So in both those ways, I think that this is certainly his most accessible film. Yeah, I mean, there are several scenes in which Jackie is talking to someone and she literally lays out the plan right. piece by piece. Yeah. So. Or segments of the plan, depending on the person. Right. And whether or not it's the real plan or the fake plan. Yeah. Also depends well, on who it is. So. It's all part of the real plan. The real plan. Right. <laughs> Except for that last part. Yeah, it's, that, it's that's almost, where she crosses them. Yeah, it's almost a heist movie. It's like halfway between a heist movie and a, a long con sort of job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I I do want to note that I was looking up Tarantino's tropes because, you know, I, I know some of them and I think about some of them. But I really wanted to note how many were different in this movie and how many stayed. Uh, real uh, quick, does any, was there any shots from inside of a trunk? Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, when he's cool. pushing the dude in the sure. beginning. That's one of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the first one I have, true. I have the top nine Quentin Tarantino tropes, courtesy of BuzzFeed, I'm sure. Uh, (laughs) The impromptu dance number doesn't have it in this one. Uh, Casting of icons of the 70s in a major role. Yes, that is this movie. Uh, The obligatory trunk shot has it. Uh, Nonlinear plots. No, with the exception of a couple brief scenes. At the end. 
Yeah, when they're when they're actually doing the dressing room exchange, it backs up and goes forward again. Which I guess like isn't point of view. necessarily non-linear, but it kind of is. I think that they did that one on technicality. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it yanks back to Max's point of view, but I don't think it is to the the degree of something like I don't know, true romance, fake product placement. Uh, I don't think he really has that in this movie. Um, is is Cabo Air a real airline? I guess probably question. not. <laughs> Uh, because he he has had a penchant in the past for uh, advertising fake products such as G.O. Juice, Fruit Brute Cereal, and Teriyaki Donuts. There's Uh, a Teriyaki Donuts cup in the food court scene. Fictional Companies Wikipedia, Cabo Air is an airline featured in Jackie Brown. Oh, okay, there you go. Uh, Number four, pop music from a bygone era. Yes, in this movie, certainly. Revisionist history, revenge fantasy. Oh. Revenge fantasy maybe a, a tiny bit because I don't know. Well, well, I I do think that I, I Jackie has some beef with Ordell throughout this film, and I think that's a stretch. It's, not it's a stretch. Revenge? No, it's not. It's She's not. Not getting revenge on him. Um, well, the Mexican I mean, I standoff guess... as well. Uh, not really in this movie. Uh, well, no, there's sort of there there are standoffs in this movie. There's the one where Ordell's got his hands around her neck and she's got a gun jammed in his crotch. Actually, yeah, that's a pretty good standoff. Uh, <laughs> that's not a Mexican standoff. The Mexican standoff is I have a gun pointed at you. You have a gun pointed at me. I learned that from another Quentin Tarantino movie, Inglorious Bastards. Right, and there's also a great Mexican standoff scene in Reservoir Dogs. And then, of course, that number movie. one. What else could be at number one besides the gratuitous flaunting of his grotesque foot fetish? And Ooh. this is yeah, in this movie. In Hard check. Has anyone yep. ever asked him about that? Yeah, I'm sure they have. Or maybe we're all collectively too afraid. Or did did he just like pull out a photo out of his wallet, like one of those wallet-sized photos of Uma Thurman's feet? And he's like, are you kidding? Look at those. He's got a thing for him. Yeah, which is fine. You know, it's not hurting anybody. Sure. Yeah, I mean, but we all have to look at it. Uh, did anyone speaking of I'm foot fetish? This is actually not a good segue at all. It's just like, <laughs> right uh, I thought Chris Tucker was going to be in way more of this movie, <laughs> and that guy is in there for a hot five minutes. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you know what? He does his job, David. That's uh, right. He does his yeah. job. <laughs> uh, I it's love how he has a baseball bat at the end. Like, what? what? What are you going to well, use Chris a baseball Tucker? bat for? Yeah. Well, Tucker's dead. In the final scene when Ordell gets shot. Do and they you all know come... who Chris Tucker is? No. Is it... Chris or... Tucker is Beaumont. Chris Tucker is oh the guy gosh. that gets shot. Oh my gosh. I confused him with the guy running Max's shop. Okay. Oh, I thought that was tiny... Chris Tucker. How can you confuse Chris Tucker and Tiny Lister? Yeah, those <laughs> look up these photos here. <laughs> yeah, these, these men look very different. Okay, I digress. Yeah. Um, but I do love Tiny Lister in this movie. I love Tiny Lister. Yeah, he's great I do in this. I not love Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker, though, <laughs> I do appreciate that the way Tarantino is able to push his car, his trunk fetish into this movie was through having a man convince another man to hide in a trunk to inevitably kill him. It was, it was, I, I gotta admit, it was a pretty good plan. <laughs> that is yeah. a great way. <laughs> You're gonna it kill was clever. Someone. 
And I think, you know, speaking of that, I think that's a good segue in something else I wanted to talk about, which is Sam Jackson in this movie. This is really so when I put hair. Yeah, when I put Sam Jackson in our docket, I really just put his hair because I feel like that is really the most important thing going on in this movie. And I actually do feel like his hair is tied to the unraveling of the film because his hair gets increasingly more greasy and undone. And eventually we finally see it in its entirety of its main at the end of the movie when he's at his worst point. So I think that really the movie can be tracked through his hair. And I'm only partly kidding here. (laughs) And uh, when he finally see when we finally see him without a hat, I don't know. I just want to know other people shared that experience. Uh, I I just want to know that other people had that inflicted upon them. I did have a hard time looking anywhere but his hair in the scenes that he was in, Uh, which is a shame because that sounds like he gave a great performance. I can't speak to his facial expressions because, man, that hair. No, he he definitely did. Yeah, he brings his he brings his trademark intensity and he he makes it clear that while Ordell Roby is a cunning man and he likes to think of himself as clever he's actually not as smart as he believes right so jackie's able to manipulate him pretty well (laughs) which that's kind of pointed out early on in the film by uh, bridget fonda's character right right exactly kind of like calls out like he you know he thinks he's hot but he's really not and that kind of just plays out for the rest of the movie yeah yeah absolutely Uh, this is one of the also um, she also makes that comment really about Robert De Niro's character, Louis. Is it Louis or Louis? Oh, Louis. It's Louis. Louis. OK. No, I Louis is remember dumb. Which. Louis, Louis is an idiot. No, Louis <laughs> is an idiot. But but what I really appreciated about this film, honestly, I think it's one of the only times I can think of where De Niro was not the testosterone badass lead of the movie. He is greasy and raggedy and dumb in this movie and that's not a persona you often see him in he's either like a mobster or in a family comedy with Anne Hathaway or he's the taxi driver refer to the intern as a family comedy also did I just know the name of the movie the intern (laughs) no I knew that one too a romantic comedy perhaps I, I know of it I don't even know if it's a romantic comedy I don't I don't think they're getting together in that movie but isn't the no, whole movie in, like know, the the relationship troubles and like he's her surrogate father? Look, I don't know. I enough. watched this movie uh, at like three in the morning on HBO one time. I am an authority. Don't anything. <laughs> and in any case, uh, I really don't case, see him in roles like this. He gives a really fantastic performance for somebody who doesn't have a lot of lines. He's got incredibly eloquent body language he does a great job of seeming bored the whole time uh when i'm not saying that in like a a negative way like lewis just really seems like i'm here yeah like bored but trying to be polite right like i don't really know what's going on around me but um what what do you need me to do sure yeah right like that great where simone's giving him her show where she's lip-syncing to the supremes and Oh yeah, so I wish that was revisited. That was so bizarre. Yeah, (laughs) I. So I got to throw this out here. I might have misseen this. Is he smoking out of a penis bong, or does that just thing just look very phallic? I I mean, all bongs look like penises. No, I know that, but like. (laughs) 
I think there's like veins and stuff on that thing that she hands him. I, I think it's just carved. I looked because I, I wondered about that too, and I don't. Okay, I'm glad I'm not alone I, in this. It's about the right proportions, but I don't think so. I think it's supposed Ugh. to be like some sort of, you know, like those um, incognito mode, like those tiki mugs in uh, Chinese restaurants that you're zombie in. You know, I think it's it's carved like that or molded, probably. N- nice. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, boy, know. there are several reference images for this bong. Uh, no, yeah. it is a okay. It is a, there's a skull, okay, uh, which is the bull part of it, and then there's like a snake wrapped around, moving up, so it's not penis shaped. Okay, okay, now all right, we've mystery solved. Mystery solved. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then, uh, what's up with Lewis in this movie? I think that came from David, probably. I mean, uh, we kind of discussed that. I yeah, mean, there's part of me just, that wondered for a little while, like, is something wrong? Like, he's just got hit too many times in the head, you know? <laughs> also a possibility. Also, yeah, I think he, one of the most abrupt, like, pieces of the film for me, having never seen it before, is him just straight up killing Melanie, Melanie yeah. in the yeah. parking lot. And that's one of my discussion topics is how is everyone shooting other people and walking <laughs> away from it all the time in broad daylight in relatively busy places? This happens, like, at least two, three times in this movie. And that, 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 that got me too. like a gunshot going off in a mall parking lot is not going like to go in the afternoon. Like this would noticed. This is not OK. Like I can play ignorant when it comes to like the Syrian like raiders that take Doc Brown like that. Libyans. that First of all, they're Libyans. Libyan. <laughs> well, like that parking lot, it's it's like two in the morning or like midnight or something like that. Right. Sure. That's fine. But and it was the 80s. So and it was the 80s, I, I guess. Um, but this is like happening in broad daylight. He does it like in the middle of all the cars and then just like straight up walks to his car and like gets in it and drives away. And yeah, later Sam was, Jackson kills was- him. Well, yeah, Sam Jackson killing him, I thought was, I mean, because they were kind of parked off onto a side street and they were in a car and gunshots are still really loud. I mean, no movie really properly demonstrates the set, you know, how loud gunshots actually are. But that one I was like able to excuse more than, yeah, him shooting her in straight up parking lot. Nicole, you seemed like you were, you had a thought on it. No, I think I obviously that was, that would be likely to draw attention, but A, it's Los Angeles. B, I think it's. <laughs> I think it's that they're between cars and a lot of people will mistake gunshots for fireworks if they're not experienced gun handlers and aren't or haven't been around it much. So a lot of people will confuse the two if they're not experienced. Or car exhaust going off. Yeah. In fact, so, um, I mean, when I was a beat reporter in Chinatown in Chicago, I, when I would go to the police precinct um, community meetings every week uh there would be a ton of uh calls for gunshots and 99 percent of them were not gunshots they were usually a car exhaust and that's why the cops like took them seriously but also said like these calls are not accurately representing the amount of violence in our neighborhood um so i mean yeah there's tons of different things you can hear that are not a you know actually a gun yeah but I, I've had the unfortunate chance to be around a gunshot without any ear protection on. And let me tell you, if you don't know what it is, sure, you might mistake it for a really loud car exhaust. I don't think car exhaust 
backfiring gets that loud. Yes. It is but very you know loud. What? Also, it's a movie. So. It's, it's, yes, <laughs> I know. I know. I, I know but okay. Well, let's let's delve back into our discussion topics. Uh, it's based on a novel by Elmer uh, Leonard. Yes. Better or worse for having the base story written by someone other than Tarantino? This is a question from Nicole. It's a very interesting one because Tarantino loves to write his movies. Uh, he's one of those directors. And he definitely yeah, has this. This is the very... only one he didn't come up with the story for it. He's adapting somebody else's material. Right. And he also has a very signature style of writing. Uh, and even all the way down to like when he writes a screenplay, in my opinion, his cameos of himself are less Peter Jackson and more gratuitous. Like at least Peter Jackson, at least Hitchcock were like Peter very. In the background. Right. And so is Hitchcock. Um, they were in the background. And I know he totally pulls it from Hitchcock because he is that sort of cinephile. Uh, but he's very gratuitous with them, almost to the point where he I mean, he is a main character in some of his films. Yeah. But in this movie, he only has one very brief, not visually seen cameo. And I, even that is, I think, yes. is different because he didn't write the movie. Uh, first of all, I did not know that Elmore Leonard wrote Get Shorty and yep. Be Cool. Yep. And uh, 310 to Yuma. Yep. So that I've learned quite a bit here today. He has had a lot of stuff that has been turned into movies and episodes of Justified. Um, <laughs> uh, back to the, the Tarantino thing. I remember this thing when watching this thing about when uh, the, the what's the, that, that one movie that he uh, did, I think it was Reservoir Dogs. He like wrote, you know, he wrote the screenplay and it said on the front of the screenplay, like written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. And people were like, you know, what the hell? Like, you can't just say like, you're going to direct this thing. But the movie had such a distinct voice to it that like when you read it, it was like, oh, well, no one else can direct this movie the way that it's written. So I think, yeah, he does have a very distinct voice. Uh, But this movie still, I think, has that voice to it. I think that this movie, you know, had I, I haven't read the story so, or the book, so I, I can't speak to how the, the parallels and what's there and what's not. Um, but obviously, like, he it resonated with him enough that he felt this could fit with you know, what he was already comfortable doing. Is he a better, uh, and maybe there's no real answer to this question, or maybe it's both, is he a better writer or director? Uh, director, I yeah. think. Because I mean, my favorite is... movie of his that I've cited numerous times on this show for how absurd it is, From Dusk Till Dawn, which he which he produced, but he also wrote. <laughs> he wrote From Dusk Till Dawn, and half did directed. not direct it. Uh, yeah. Did he direct the first half? He directed I, the first I, half. The first half. No, I thought when they he did get the to second. the bar, it becomes Rodriguez's movie. Oh, I thought Rodriguez yep. did the Hard whole movie, part. but wow, that's something nope, I learned today. No, nope. they half-directed. Yep. There was a very distinct point where it switches. <laughs> yeah. I think when the vampires come out, there is a very distinct That's switch. Robert Rodriguez. Oh, spoilers, uh, yes. <laughs> oh, come on. When, when the uh, yeah. stuff is happening, it's still a Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, spoilers for first... me all from 1996. Uh, but yeah. yeah. No, that was that was the first movie I ever saw that took one of those really hard, hard left turns, turns yeah. in the middle. <laughs> but in any case, this, this movie, Elmore Leonard is a very snappy rhythmic writer his books move right along you can read one in a day if you have enough time it just 
you know, they're, they're excellent airport reads, beach reads, that kind of thing. But he's a very good writer. And apparently he was very pleased with the script that Quentin Tarantino wrote adapting it. And Tarantino, I guess, was a little concerned because he changed um, Jackie's race. He changed the last name. From Jackie Burke. I'm, I'm just reading the summary here on it. I mean, the plot in the book is in very similar. Yes. Yeah. Like in pretty much most ways. But I mean, you know, it's this is Tarantino's language and tone, and it's definitely done in his style. It's just not his base story. Did he and change? It's very clear homage to 70s black exploitation movies. Right. And that, that's actually my question is that. Did he change Jackie's race in order to best align himself into a homage of black exploitation? No, he did it so he could cast Pam Greer. <laughs> so he could make he an homage of her own movies. In a, way. <laughs> Just, in a yeah. way, yes. Yeah, yes. because like the, I put that in our docket and I find it very interesting in this movie that she is homaging herself in this movie. Yeah, um, yeah she's it's, doing a variation of Foxy Brown in this movie. Right. It's like it's weirdly self-referential in a way I don't think I've ever seen before because she's great in this movie. And oh, she's yeah. fantastic. What pains me is that when I was reading this about this film, I was reading all about how this was a comeback for her because people had not paid attention to her in you know in her forties, and yeah. I'm not seeing a whole lot else besides this from that time, uh, which is a no, shame because she was she's on so the L good. Word in this. For years, after what was this. she on? The L, the L Word. Yeah, she was on seventy L episodes word. of the L Word. What is the L Word? I've never heard of this. Um, it was kind of prestige. It's was, a lesbian uh, show. L L stands for lesbian. <laughs> I think it was on. Yeah, I, I can't remember what channel it was on, but it was kind of at the beginning of like during like the Sopranos era. So um, wait, before. the characters date, get in the committed relationships, consider having families, hook up, break up, question sexuality. This is Sex in the City, but for lesbians. Uh, <laughs> no, it's like Audrey. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I think there's a little bit less day drinking, but I don't. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot less day drinking. Oh, All right. Well, I'm, I'm I'm glad she had a career after this. And I'd never heard of that show because she's, she's fantastic in this yeah, movie. She still works. I mean, look, she was the grandma on This Is Us. All right. People love that show. Well, that's the truth. Yeah. So I have several coworkers who are deeply, deeply invested in the fates of people on This Is Us. Yeah. Oh, hey, she was also in Grand Theft Auto Five. So yes, she was. She was excellent. Tarantino's got this talent. He picks people whose careers he wants to resurrect, and it's just he's, you know, he claims that it's just he's just got a much bigger box of actors that he thinks of for casting in roles than most people in Hollywood do because of the vast he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of movies especially mm -hmm. movies from the 70s yeah i mean he um, brought travolta back i mean and then yeah. and then look, look and then like for us all phenomenon so, happened and, and they went right well, back down and adele dazeem <laughs> he it revived his career robert forrester got a little more, more i was gonna say work. i was gonna say yeah they kind of helped robert forrester as well yeah robert forrester didn't have an agent it's like Quentin knew somebody who saw Robert Forster ate at the same diner almost every morning. Mm -hmm. So Tarantino just showed up there with the script and said, right. you know, I have a part for you. <laughs> yeah, Robert Forrester is one of those blue collar actors. I mean, if you look at 
before this movie, yeah, he was like working, doing some stuff. But then like after this movie, he is in like eight things a year. Yeah. In small little roles. But, you know, I've seen his face a hundred times. Yeah. So, but I mean, okay. this is his best work. And, I and a quick question about Tarantino. And I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because we explore this I mean, uh, every film. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, but we, we this particular topic we explore every once in a while now, probably in the wake of Me Too and whatnot. Uh, is it weird watching a Tarantino film now that we know a little bit more about A, how he makes them, and then B, his defense of maybe less than wholesome figures in Hollywood? That proves a little problematic for me, to be entirely honest. I'm like, I really want to watch Kill Bill again recently. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to watch Uma Thurman get spit on and drive a car off the road. <sighs> I think uh, I don't want to defend his actions in any way. I also don't want to. I, what I'm trying to say is I don't think many people were surprised when they found out Tarantino's a real weirdo. It's just kind of unfortunately because he's always been a weirdo when he says weirdo things. People are like, ah, he was always weird. Should we probably hold him to the same standard? Yeah, but unfortunately always being the kind of weird guy who had a who was flaunting his foot fetish in our face you kind of get people who are already a little off put so they just shrug their shoulders and i don't think it's a good thing i don't think it's a good thing i just think that's kind of what happened no he needed to be more alert he needed to be more active he needed to be stepping in i mean yes the Weinsteins helped make his career, but he also helped make Miramax huge mm -hmm. and the Weinstein company afterward huge because of his movies being so massively successful. So it was a two-way street and he should have exerted the influence that he had to try to halt what was going on. But Yeah, I find know, him... I don't know. I, I, I find him... Uh, again, I, to go back to the college era, right? Like... When you're in college, Tarantino is so fascinating. It's edgy and it's bloody and it's shot with vivid colors and it's nonlinear. And, and like it's the F word. It's the F word. And then like and then you kind of come out of that and you're like, did you really have to say the N word that many times? Well, you I come out you know, of you, you discover the R rating for the first time. And with Tarantino, that's a great way to describe it. You discover the R rating with Tarantino. But I think like all those bad things in one place. Right. But I think some of it gets gratuitous to an extreme degree beyond just the gore. And I feel like oh, that's that's echoed in part with just him as a person. And I he, think that he wrote a way for him to rant and use the N word a bunch of times in Pulp Fiction. Or like Django Unchained. I mean, Django Unchained has context because the N word is being used a lot in Slave Days, but also like. I, I don't know. I, and I think he's going to struggle with that. I really do. I feel like uh, as these legacy directors, and I think it's I think Tarantino's old enough now to be considered like of a certain generation of 90s directors where they are going to have to be more conscientious of these things because, dude, you can't make a Star Trek film and act like that. Like they're, well, that's like not going to fly. Yeah, I'd like to think that he's a smart enough guy that he's going to learn from you know, all the women that are coming out of the woodwork to let everyone know what's been going on in the background and, you know, learn from what's happened. I, you know, the, the benefit of the doubt that I would give him from 
interviews I've seen with him and everything I've seen about his films is that he's just, he's an obsessive filmmaker and I think he will screen and this is not excusing it. Like I said, he should have used his power to step in and say something. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that he's an obsessive person and probably screens a lot of things out while he is making a movie and is very focused on that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, there's part of me that thinks that this whole making a Star Trek movie is a passion of his probably, but there's also part of him that's like, I think it's kind of some smart self-marketing. Uh, <laughs> I will do tone some... it down a little right. bit. <laughs> I'm going to tone it down. I'm going to go do this thing. That's already like beloved and we can attach my name to it, but it's not, you know, it's not, a, it's not a Quentin Tarantino movie because it's not, I'm not writing it and putting it out with me or Max or anything like that. It's him going to do like another studio's property. So he's like still working and can try and like, people will be like, did you see that Star Trek movie? We still love you, Tarantino. Uh, or he's going to get a like vehement Star Trek fan base, just decimate yeah. him. He's going to get George Lucas. Hate it. This yeah. could be, this could be there. The last Jedi. I don't know. Either way I'm into it. Uh, <laughs> Remake like the, the Star aftermath, Trek. The aftermath. I mean, I, but, mean whatever happens there. I love it. I'm really glad we talk about things like this on the show because I think having the context of looking at a film from the 90s and being able to talk about what's happening today and also what's being what's happening today with the talent who made that film, I think lends further context to be able to discuss it. And I'm happy we do that, uh, even though it's certainly a controversial topic. By the time this comes out, like, we're, what's another beloved icon? We're all going to oh, be God. like, no, it couldn't be. Tom Hanks. Oh, don't you <laughs> no, I, can't. I, will I, Tom Hanks. I will quit this podcast. I might quit life. Here's the thing. Have you noticed? And this is this is a rabbit hole. But have you noticed that if they're so beloved to a wholesome degree, Bill Cosby aside, people seem to kind of just forget a little bit because if I'm not mistaken, Morgan Freeman was accused like two weeks ago and that's been oh, yeah. dead silent. Oh, um, he's been accused more than once. Right. Yeah. Like multiple women. Quiet again. Cause he knows, he knows when to shut his mouth and that's come mm-hmm. t- <laughs> probably yeah, a good point. I'm also, also the bill caught like, all right. Oh, this is a real landmine that I've, <laughs> I've not. Oh, I stepped into this field. Jump on it, David. Jump on it. this field, but I have to try to navigate it. Okay. Uh, harassment is bad. <laughs> real bad. Okay, good start. Uh, <laughs> drugging women is worse because yeah. you because because we, we said bill cosby and it's like well you know you know bill cosby aside it's because what bill cosby did was horrifying and these guys who are like uh hey buddy that thing you did that one time is real bad and they're like yeah you're right i'm gonna shut up and step back i think yeah that's yeah. why we're like willing to kind of you know i don't want to say let it go but it's like we're not going to spend the time dragging them into the mud as we have Bill Cosby, who deserves it. I saw that yeah. guy do stand up. Guys, it's real conflicting. Oh, no. For me, as a guy now doing stand up, looking back on his influences, neither uh, were there. No, I grew up listening to his like his old records on vinyl, and I had to throw his CDs in the trash when I found out, and I was sad, but it had to be done. So. There you go. This is a real interesting path. This movie. Discussion. This is anyway, very interesting. So where but you to, were going to route us to route us to route us back, though, I do want to ask, and I think this is a good question from David. Why is this the least talked about Tarantino movie? Because I don't know. This is my favorite. 
Is it because it's less? Um, less I can't. Th- no, I mean, I no, yeah, but it is. But also, like when I think of Tarantino films, I always think of that scene. And I don't know if this movie has that scene. I don't know if this has Jamie Foxx standing on the ruins of a burned down, you know, white settlement and uh, Django Unchained. I don't know if it has. Oh, Are you talking about the stupid horse trick scene? Because that scene almost ruined that whole or, movie for me. Or, 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 or I don't think it has the scene of um, Brad Pitt beating the dude into the baseball bat or whoever the, the other dude is that beats the dude. Do you My mean po- each movie has a that scene in it? Or is yeah, there I mean, a like, style of scene in particular you're talking about? I'm saying that uh, like there is something all, dramatic and intense and usually violent that tends to happen in one scene or two scenes or three scenes in Tarantino films that I can always like vis- like vividly remember when I think of those movies. I cannot think of Inglorious Bastards without right. thinking of the baseball bat scene. And, and, and for the record, it's Eli Roth swinging the baseball Eli bat. Roth. Not and Pitt. this movie doesn't have that. And I think that I, that's part of it, maybe. I think maybe, I mean, kind of to that point, this is the most understated of his films. Yeah. Maybe that kind of fact that it is the most accessible and it is the most like other movies, you know, it's so unlike the other Tarantino films that, yeah, maybe it kind of does kind of get lost in the wayside there. I mean, I have seen all of his movies now. It took me a while to see Death Proof, but I finally caught up to it in the past year. I like Death Proof. Death Proof is like two movies, but that's neither here nor there. Well, but this movie, Jackie Brown, is Quentin Tarantino not getting in his own way. He's mm, interesting. Not putting so many flourishes on that you can't see the story anymore. Hmm. Yes, yeah. so, I, I can. No, no, I, I can see that. And reading the summary, where you kind of, I kind of get the sense like he didn't just take oh some characters and the slight inspiration from the book. He took the story of the book. I'm sure there's changes that, you know, I don't know if the climax took place in a shopping mall in the book, but yeah, it's, it's the whole, there's the whole double cross. There's the same characters are all in there and Mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's, it's him kind of letting go a little bit and telling a story that's not entirely his own. So yeah, he would probably not be as obsessed with those little flourishes. Right. And I think he spends that energy trying very hard to make Pam Greer and Robert Forster look great and bring out fantastic performances from both of them. You know, Robert Forster got nominated for a supporting actor award for this role. And I can see why, because he has one scene that's absolutely I think it's my favorite in the movie. Uh, I think it's the, I can't remember if it's the first or second time he talks to Ordell. I think it's the second time when he talks to Ordell, when Ordell comes in to transfer the bond from Beaumont over to Jackie. And he's showing off and he's making threats and he's insinuating things. And, you know, Max Cherry sees right through him immediately and calls him on it. I love how unfazed he is by like everything in this movie. Yeah. So you want, now you want me to guess what you do, you know, (laughs) I would assume it's got something to do with drugs, except for, you know, this, this, and this isn't going on. So it's probably something else. You're making money and you haven't been caught more power to you. 
Yeah, I love when he's telling the story towards the end. He's like, yeah, I've gotten to this guy's house, you know, this wanted criminal who might be on the run. I've gotten to his house and I was sitting in the couch waiting in the dark for him. Like, you know, no big deal. This is what I do. <laughs> yeah, sitting um, with my stun gun in the shop. Yeah. I'm like, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> now, it doesn't sound like Tarantino necessarily stuck. Well, we know he didn't stick to the style, though, because this kill bill followed <laughs> uh so yeah. this it's not like this was a style that he would later return to really in in any capacity i mean no, you have kill bill sin city and grindhouse each, after this each movie's kind of its own different thing yeah you know I like guess, you know, that's is fair. apparently very close to a movie called the great silence uh kill bill is lady snowblood all over again and this is sort of a it's not quite coffee or foxy brown i mean i've seen coffee that's that movie is it's it's just a little sleazy along with being you know a fun female empowerment thing because there's a lot of unnecessary breasts flying around there's actually a scene where like she gets into a girl fight and manages to rip the top off of every single woman who's fighting her and the name of this movie again coffee Uh, coffee pen i need a pen (laughs) But um, and the violence is much more gory and but it's definitely got a lot of elements and tone from black exploitation movies that he's bringing in. I think you bring up a really good point that every film's a little bit different and that's probably curated intentionally by him because for the longest time he has said and who knows if he'll stick to this that it's 10 films like the core of my filmography excluding the stuff I produce, that I write but don't direct, that I partially direct. There are going to be 10 films that I wrote and directed that are my films, and then I'm done. And he's coming up on that. I think I think he's yep. at nine. Star, uh, yeah, Star Trek would be nine, because Hateful Eight happens to also be his eighth film. Right. I have not heard this Star Trek thing. I know he's developing a movie about the Manson murders. With uh, Leonardo right. DiCaprio. Yeah, Star Trek is, I, I believe, confirmed I, that he is... Going to have his own Star writing Trek Writing and directing it? I yes. think he's... I don't... I would suspect not writing it. I Was it confirmed or I thought that it was like st- still very likely? It's got to be collaborative. Here, I can give you... Way. JJ is going to be a producer and also help Tarantino find a writer. So he would not write it, but he's right. also okay. working on a screenplay treatment himself right now, which I assume would be worked on then more with the other person. But it's going to come long after his next movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is that Manson film. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder that we discussed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on episode 143 with guest Justin Robert Young. I hope you'll go back and check it out. It would be weird if, if Star Trek was the 10th film. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to guess um, that's not going to be That's going to get amended. Well, they're also because they're also going to do another movie set in the Chris Pine Oh, yeah. And also, it's worth keeping in mind that it would not be part of this 10 technically because I don't believe he's going to write it. I think he's just writing a treatment right now for someone to adapt. Mm -hmm. So he's very specific about what he considers part of those 10. Like he considers Kill Bill. I mean, Kill Bill's one technically because it's one long movie. Uh, And then he Mm -hmm. doesn't include a lot of movies that he did have a heavy hand in, you know, like from Dust Till Dawn probably be in there he was the only right Rodriguez didn't even write period I mean there was another writer on it but I I digress uh he gets 
I think he's very selective about those ten. Yeah. Uh, who knows? We can well, return to this in a couple of years. Yeah. yeah, let's pull it back to this movie. <laughs> yes, uh, and our final discussion topic of the evening: Where do you think Max goes at the end of the movie? From the doesn't Nicole? she say where she's heading? No, Max. she's going to Spain. Oh, but oh. Max like sort of walks off into the background and goes out of focus. He totally I think follows he's her. Just returning. I think he's returning to his life. I think he follows. No. This is a dude that has played straight and narrow, or not maybe not straight and narrow because he's worked with a lot of crooks, but he has worked the same job for 19 years. He has obviously not a lot to show for it. At least that's really what he seems to come to a conclusion toward. And it really just drops everything kind of to take this gigantic leap of faith of doing something really radical with Jackie Brown at what he's 56 or something like that in this movie. Like he has exhibited that he is willing to go off the deep end at this point in his life. I think he follows her. Hmm. I don't know. There's just kind of something about their last interaction where, you know, he seems to kind of be like, the reality of the situation is this is my life and he's like sad and forlorn about it. But I just, I really kind of got the the feeling of the whole thing is like, no, nah, no, nope. I'm just going to get doing that's what a I'm good doing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think I'd like to think that he follows after a few minutes, but everything about his character says to me that he, he knows he's in love with her but that she lives she lives her life in a different way than he does. And rather than have the heartbreak of trying to make it work and come apart, that it's better to to care for her from afar mm-hmm. and not go. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, I you guys I might know. you you both might have swayed I mean, my this, opinion. This is another bit. thing that I love about this movie is that this is this is mature affection. This is how attraction can develop when you're later on in life and you're way more practical (laughs) about who you meet and why and who you try to get closer to and who you don't and whether you think realistically something will work or not rather than you know when you're younger you tend to you tend to just feel that attraction more than anything and just figure, well, we'll find some way to make it work <laughs> by middle age. You've got the life experience to be like, you can try to make it work and maybe it will, but it's likely that, you know, if you're X kind of person and that's Y kind of person that it won't. And so you have to be, you cut your losses. Good God. Am I hitting can. middle age? Cause I am getting you know, to this I don't point know. where that's, I'm like, I'm burning through a lot of like, man, affection and infatuation only gets you so far. Like <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a certain level of realism to life here. And that does not translate into following someone around at the end of their movie. And I think that's really going to bring us around to the end of this discussion. I think this was one of our better discussions. I'm going to say that on the show. I'm really proud of this discussion. Yes. <laughs> I think Nicole brought us a great film to talk about. And I watched oh, it twice. Yay! Uh, I'm, what's my record now? Is my record three for three? Uh, I, the, I great beauty still, um, the Great Beauty still... The Great Beauty still... I'm thinking no, about I mean, that one. I mean, you're new to two movies. Classic, yeah. What were your other new to twos? Two. 
uh, Miracle of Morgan's Creek. And Frailty. Yeah, so you're three for three. And Frailty. I love, I love frailty. What a weird movie. <laughs> <laughs> weird movie. Yeah, you're you're three for three. Uh, I okay, think so. Good. Well, um, in that case, let's remind the audience that it is Lucky Them next week, 2013, and of course, you can find it on Netflix. Netflix did choose it for us. Uh, David, crossed, where, man. Oh, I know. <laughs> David, where can people find you online? Uh, people can find me on the Heck Yeah Comics podcast. You can also find me on the Brokebot Mountain podcast. And you can find me around the internet under the username DavLuz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. So Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, you can find me there. And Nicole, what about you? Uh, first of all, quick shout out to Bridget Fonda, who we didn't even mention for more than like two seconds. In we didn't mention that Michael Keaton's in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Michael Keaton has darker hair in this movie, as David pointed out in our yeah. Slack. Yep. So. Yeah, Michael Keaton, Bridget Fonda, also both excellent job in this film. So, yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter under at your word whiz, Y-O-U-R-W-O-R-D-W-H-I-Z. You can find me on Letterboxd under Nicole underscore Davis, and you can find me shepherding the Movie Go Round Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash movie go round podcast. You can... Find us there. Ask questions. Give suggestions. Interact. Please do. Vote. Vote. Every five weeks you have vote. the opportunity yes. to vote. We want to hear and, from you. Uh, I'm going to add another amendment to Nicole's amendment of Michael Keaton, which is every scene in this movie where he's sitting down, there is an uncomfortable amount of sound resulting from his leather jacket. And they, it's clear they made him wear this because he has to be the edgier, like the edgier of the two federal officers. And he also kind of plays like the good cop and good cop, bad cop, and then kind of like switches to just yeah. the bad cop. And like, it's not really clear, like when he's, you know, interrogating Jackie Brown and he just like squeaks. Uh, it's really peculiar. Uh, but massive I, amount of gum that he's chewing. In every oh, the scene. massive amount of gum. It can only be triumphed <laughs> by the massive amount of gum he chews in Spotlight. The entire movie is smacking away. But uh, <laughs> that'll do it for myself, David and Nicole. We'll see you on the other side of uh, Lucky Them. And hopefully it won't be that bad. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs>